0: our scripture reading for today comes from 2nd Corinthians chapter 10 and we're just going to look at six verses today verses one through six this is the word of the Lord I Paul myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ I who am humble when face to face with you but bold toward you when I am away I beg of you that when I am present I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we are going through a series on 2 Corinthians, and you know, just by way of a reminder, uh, the reason we're going through this letter and through this book is because it reflects on dynamics of weakness and power. And I think these are such important themes for us to reflect on. And we've been saying this is one of Paul's most personal letters because it's not just kind of external issues that are happening in the Corinthian church, but the issues in the Corinthian church have to do with Paul personally. They were doubting his authority as an apostle. They looked at Paul and saw him as somebody that was insufficient to be an apostle for reasons that don't align with values of Corinthian culture. And if you can just imagine the city of Corinth being similar to the city of New York, then you can understand why people questioned Paul's authority because he was poor, he was low in status, he didn't have great rhetorical gifts, and he wasn't a great public speaker like other influential itinerant teachers were known to have. And so what Paul's doing, he's kind of navigating this problem and he, he, he does have to walk a very fine line because on the one hand, he knows that the way you experience the power of God that aligns with the kingdom of God is actually ultimately through weakness and not boasting in your talents and your gifts because ultimately Jesus set the paradigm for that. Jesus achieved victory through suffering and death. And therefore, Paul doesn't necessarily want to commend himself and say, hey, look how great I am. On the other hand, he is an apostle. And because he is an apostle, he does mediate God's authority. And if the Corinthian church questions his apostleship and they follow these false teachers known as the super apostles, then ultimately it's not good for them because they would be led astray. And so when we read this, commentators have pointed out that Paul, he kind of seems to go back and forth with respect to his tone. And I suspect it's because he's navigating that fine line of not wanting to boast himself and yet assert his apostolic authority because it is good for the corinthians Uh, here he is responding to an accusation where people would say you know apostle paul you seem very bold when you write to us but then when we look at you face to face you're like this weak humble uh little guy right Uh, i guess it would kind of be like reading an email and you know some people write email in a very strong language and with a lot of exclamation marks and then you meet the person who wrote the email, and their disposition is, like, very different from their, right, the way they sound on email. Well, Paul, he wrote a very severe letter to the Corinthians, which is the lost letter, which is a letter we don't have. But then when he visited them, the Corinthians probably thought, hey, uh, your physical disposition, they don't really align with your words. Look at you. you. You look kind of, like, small and weak, and you suffered a lot. He had this thorn, and we don't know what the thorn is. Uh, so I don't know. It wasn't this, but let's say it was a limp. So imagine him like kind of limping, and it's like, whoa, you, you talk big. But when we see you, you're not very um, strong. And so uh, that's one of the things that they were criticizing with him for. And Paul, he doesn't shy away from uh, being bold with his words, but he also doesn't shy away from who he is and his meek disposition. He actually leans into both of them. Uh, the first thing we see here is he leans into his meekness and notice the way he begins this section of the letter and he says this, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And that's how he, that's how he starts. Uh, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you probably are, have some sense that meekness is considered to be a good thing in the Bible. Uh, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But I'm not so sure people around us uh, would necessarily look at meekness as an expression of something that's good. They wouldn't look at meekness as an expression of strength. People probably think meekness is weakness. They think uh, meek people are too subservient, too passive, and therefore maybe meek people cannot lead because their meekness prohibits them from commanding the respect that they need to get things done. But you see, meekness wasn't actually viewed that way in the ancient world. I was reading a commentary and it was saying this if you look at ancient literature meekness was actually viewed as a virtue uh, for those who had power and the reason it was viewed as a virtue is because people in the ancient world believed that meek leaders had a kind of mastery over themselves and it would prevent them from allowing their intemperate feelings from getting out of control and from them responding and acting out of frustration and displeasure Uh, in other words they believe meekness, it actually showed a kind of strength and power uh, as opposed to maybe what typically people would interpret as strength and power. And I think the Bible's view of meekness is compatible with that ancient understanding of meekness. And again, I'm not so sure people in our culture share that perspective of meekness. If you look at the people around you, uh, I wonder if you recognize a pattern in terms of the kinds of people who rise up to positions of leadership. Um, I imagine the leaders that you like personally and the leaders that you say are good are probably the ones who are humble and supportive and they empower you to do a good job. But I also suspect that if you have a hard time with like your managers or your bosses and people in high positions... Uh, they are probably the ones who have a kind of boldness in their personality that translates into asserting themselves and asserting their opinions and placing demands on people around them. And sometimes that gets mistaken for leadership material. And that's why I think actually a lot of narcissistic personality types are appointed to positions of leadership because some of these personality traits gets interpreted as strength. And by the way, uh, the church is not spared from that. Uh, there are probably a lot of narcissistic pastor types as well. Now, when we look at how Paul exerts his leadership, it is not to say that he is unwilling to be bold. It's not to say that he is unwilling to confront the Corinthians. But here's the thing. He prefers to first be meek and gentle until he needs to be bold for their sake. And Again, I know in our cultural moment, people tend to look at things like authority as something that's bad and problematic of a, of a broken system, but that's not the biblical view either. Authority is a good thing uh, that God gives people to shepherd and to care for his people. And Paul, he has authority. He has apostolic authority, which he has to defend before these Corinthians. Uh, but his pref- preference is not to kind of come in and exert his authority, but his preference is to come to them with meekness and gentleness first. Uh, there's a short book on Christian leadership uh, by Henry Nowen, and I read this book because so many people just quote it and reference it, so I was like, all right, I got to check out this book. Nouwen was a Catholic priest, and uh, this book was published, you know, I guess a couple decades ago in 1989, but he has this chapter about power and the temptation of power, and he has this, like, really great paragraph. It's a little long, but I think it's so good, I want to read it in its entirety. This is what he says. He says, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. The long, painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over cross, being a leader over being led. One thing is clear to me. The temptation of power is greatest when intimacy is a threat. Much of Christian leadership is exercised by people who do not know how to develop healthy, intimate relationships and have opted for power and control instead. Many Christian empire builders have been people unable to give and receive love. Oh. <laughs> I need to print that out and uh, put it on my uh, computer background. That's, that's powerful stuff. Oh, what, a, what an incredible reminder. Now, by the way, Paul's meekness and gentleness, it's not something that he generates within, within himself. It's not something that's unique to Paul. Uh, he's very explicit about that because when he exhorts them, he says, I'm exhorting you, right, I'm entreating you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, I don't know if you remember, but all the way back in December, uh, after I came back from sabbatical, uh, I began by preaching like a little series on the gentleness of Christ And we started looking at a passage from Matthew 11, the very passage that we began our worship service with, uh, where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And that word that's translated as gentle, it's actually the same Greek word here for meek. Uh, That was the only passage, by the way, in all of the gospel narratives that actually says anything about the heart of Jesus. And I thought it was interesting that when Jesus describes his very own heart, The way he describes it is not like just or righteous, right, which uh, would be very appropriate as well. But when Jesus describes his own heart, he describes it as gentle and lowly or meek and lowly. But Jesus said that in a context, of course, where he had just pronounced all these judgments. And so even though judgment against sin is a part of who Jesus is, Jesus' heart is one of openness and invitation. Gentleness and meekness are necessary things if uh, you want people to respond to an invitation and to come find rest for your souls. Similarly, Paul, he's in the middle of a conflict here, and he's confronting the Corinthian church because some of them are too boastful, and they're aligning themselves with some of these false teachers who call themselves super apostles. And, you know, we'll get to the words of rebuke. I I thought maybe include the words of rebuke in this sermon, but I'm going to Um, separate them Uh, we'll get to the words of rebuke next week and the sarcasm next week but paul wants them to know he's exhorting them with meekness and gentleness of christ because he wants to shepherd them and love them his goal is not to control them or to coerce them into taking certain actions but his goal is to shepherd them back into the ways of the kingdom and that's why he chooses to be meek and gentle in his exhortation to them. But there's also a very interesting contrast in tone and language if you read the second half of the passage. Uh, Starting in verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And you kind of think he's coming with meekness and gentleness, but then the words that he uses here, starting in verse three, you don't typically associate with meekness and gentleness. Uh, these are a lot of uh, this is a lot of language that reflects like military language, uh, warfare language. He uses language like destruction and captivity which again are words associated with being in battle. And what may look like weakness according to the flesh turns out to be power according to the spirit. And while Paul may look weak according to the flesh, he's also asserting here he is full of power, the power of the spirit to engage in spiritual warfare and not only engage in spiritual warfare, but he has the power to destroy strongholds. Now, throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul has been assuming something that secular people don't always assume, and it's this. You know, there's more to reality than just the material world that we see. Uh, There is a spiritual realm. And if you pray, a part of you should recognize that. There is a spiritual realm. At the same time, uh, we don't necessarily live in a kind of world that forms us to think about some of these spiritual realities. Uh, we looked at the book of Revelation last year, and one of the things that it emphasized was the spiritual nature of things. Uh, you remember when I told this really corny joke about demons, and it was over Zoom, so like nobody laughing wasn't as like, effective. If I told the joke here and nobody laughed and you have the silence, then, you know I'd feel bad. But uh, yeah, it was a really bad joke about demons. And the reason I gave that joke is because I said, you know, when you hear that joke, your response is, wow, that's a terrible joke, right? That's a really corny joke. But if you think about people like a 1,000 years ago, people who lived in um, what people have called an enchanted world where they believed in, like, demons and spirits in a spiritual realm where that was just kind of a natural part of their understanding of the world, if uh, somebody told a joke about demons a 1,000 years ago, their response wouldn't have been, oh, that's a corny joke. Their response would have been, what are you doing joking about demons, right? Do you really want to mess with the demons? And that's just to kind of contrast the world that we live in today versus the world that people lived in hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But I think the world that people lived in hundreds of years ago where the world was enchanted, where the spiritual realm was kind of the default way of looking at the world, is actually more compatible with the biblical worldview. You know, I read this book about spiritual formation, and the author made a very interesting point. He says, you see a greater emphasis on things like spiritual formation in churches and seminaries today because by default, we are not a people that are formed based on spiritual realities. Uh, So when we go to a prayer meeting, uh, a part of us feels a sense of the reality of the spiritual realm, that our prayers are actually doing something in the spiritual realm. But I also bet there's a part of us that is overly concerned about the words that we are saying in our prayers Uh, because we're worried about our sense of performance, right, performing our spirituality before others. In other words, we're worried about, like, this, uh, the world that we see, and not so much thinking about the spiritual realm and what our prayers are actually doing. I can see some people finding it more authentic to pray privately because of that, rather than to pray in a group for that very reason. I can see why people in our age would not really want to come to a church service, um, and say, you know, it's not really worth it if they don't feel like they've learned all that much, uh, if they feel like they can access the same information and knowledge uh, via YouTube, Um, rather than having a sense, hey, you know, being in the presence of God with the people of God in worship has spiritual significance. And these are just kind of symptoms of being formed, or maybe I should say deformed, in an age that doesn't necessarily embrace the spiritual realm. But you see, Paul is very, has been very clear in this letter about the reality of the spiritual realm, about spiritual realities, about things that we cannot see. That's the only reason he can say things like, Christ leads us in triumphal procession, despite the fact that in the material world he's been persecuted and arrested and beaten. That's the only reason he can say things like, we are afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. That's why he can say things like, even though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. And that's why he can say, he looks to things that are not, uh, he does not look to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And that's why he can say in this passage, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Because the reality of spiritual warfare is something that he engages in. In spite of what we see with our eyes, in spite of what he looks like, in spite of all these external qualities that typically we overemphasize. Now, what are some of these spiritual strongholds? Um, Here, I think Paul is actually thinking about the context of the mind. Uh, Sometimes when people think of spiritual strongholds, they think about like territories, and by the way, I, I, I believe that. I think there are strongholds over uh, geographic locations because in Daniel, there is a prince of Persia. Uh, but here in this particular context, I think Paul's actually thinking about the mind, the spiritual warfare where the context is the mind. Starting in verse 5, he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, if I were to ask you, what is it to have the ideal mind. If you were to say, I wish my mind was a a certain way, what would you say? I think a lot of people would say, well, I want to have the highest IQ, or I want a mind that is incredibly smart and intellectual and quick and fast and witty, or maybe I want a mind that is incredibly creative, right? This is typically what we associate with uh, the kind of mind that we want, and all of those would not be bad answers, but, uh, They're only not bad answers because uh, our minds ultimately reflect God. What we want in our minds ultimately reflect who God is. Uh, There's a phrase that I believe was originated by, this is a scientist actually, not a theologian, but theologians kind of borrowed it and took it. But uh, a scientist named Johann Kepler, and as he was studying science, I think he was an astronomer, uh, he said science is merely thinking God's thoughts after him. And every discovery that he makes, he says, I'm just basically thinking God's thoughts after he already thought them. And he didn't look at science as being in opposition to faith, nor did he see knowledge as something that was neutral, as if you can interpret knowledge outside of who God is. But he looked at science as the pursuit of God's thoughts through his natural revelation, and it's the thinking of God's thoughts after him. And I would say, if there's an ideal mind, that's it. It's the mind that thinks God's thoughts after after he does. How can we know God's thoughts? We can only know God's thoughts because God reveals it to us. He reveals it to us in creation, called natural revelation in theology, and he reveals it to us in scripture, or special revelation. Now the battle of the mind, we think it's, it's an intellectual battle, but it's not. It's a spiritual battle. Uh, if you think about how sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, it began with, A thought that went against God's Word. The serpent comes in and he introduces a new thought that was in opposition to what God had said and he tells Adam and Eve you will not surely die if you eat of this fruit and because of the desire within them to be like God they ate it. I think there's a lesson for us in that we often lose the battle of the mind not because we are lacking in intellectual gifts but because we let our desires get the best of us. Satan uses our heart's desires to adopt opinions that are against the knowledge of God. Now, I don't know if anybody here uh, reads The Atlantic, but just this week, uh, I don't know if anybody here even actually follows like news stories about what's happening to churches all across America. Uh, certain publications have published it, like the New York Times have published something like that too, but this week in The Atlantic, uh, there was an article uh, called, How Politics Poisoned the Evangelical Church, and then the subtitle, The Movement Spent 40 Years at War with Secular America, Now It's at War with Itself. It's a very long article. Uh, you can listen to it, right? The Atlantic has an option where you can just hear it instead of read it. It's an hour long to, to listen to it, right? Very long <laughs> article. But, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a good article if you're interested in that kind of thing. Uh, you can get a sense of what the content of the article is about based on the title, but basically it's, it's noting that there's a shift taking place within uh, specifically e- American evangelical churches where now people who hold the same faith, the same uh, or similar theological beliefs, but have different political beliefs are now starting to see one another as the enemy. Uh, the article talks about how millions of American Christians are no longer considering their faith affiliations based on matters of doctrine or ecclesiastical tradition, but now people are choosing their faith affiliations based on politics. And the most haunting line of the article, for me at least, was, right, maybe you think, oh, the church is a reflection of what's going on in society. What the article says is, the church is not a victim of America's civic strife. Instead, it is one of the principal catalysts. right? Not a great state for churches in America now I got to stay in my lane because by no means am I qualified to offer an interpretation of what's happening (laughs) uh, across all of America or the political landscape or the national landscape but here's what I do know I do know division and strife are not a reflection of the fruit of the spirit I do know division and strife is actually the fruit of the work of Satan and it's what Satan wants to achieve and accomplish Satan is the one who divides, and Satan is the one who takes pleasure in division and strife. But how is it that so many believers are contributing to this division? Given the pattern of Satan, my guess is this. People are tempted with certain desires. I don't know what those desires are exactly. Maybe it's political triumph. But somewhere along the line, people started to listen to thoughts that went against God's thoughts and his word. And of course, I'm not discouraging being politically active. There's a difference between being politically active as good citizens and seeing one's identity primarily through a political lens. And for believers to see other believers on the other side of the political aisle as the enemy has to be a departure from what God says he desires through his word. How do people uh, think so many thoughts that are contrary to God's Word, so many, right, educated and uneducated people, it actually, I don't think it has to do with intellect, although, right, both sides probably think it does have to do with intellect. I think it's spiritual warfare, and I think it's um, having the desires of our hearts captivated by something other than God himself. Now, here's the other thing that caught my attention about this article. This, uh, the author, he inserts his own voice, and I think the author himself is a believer, uh, the author inserts his own voice, and you know what he mentions? He mentions Second Corinthians. And I was like, wow, this is what he says. The first piece of scripture I memorized as a child, the verse that continues to guide my own imperfect walk, is from Paul's second letter to the early church in Corinth, Greece. As with most of his letters, the apostle was addressing dysfunction and breakage in the community of believers. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, Paul wrote, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul's admonishment of the early church contains no real ambiguity. Followers of Jesus are to orient themselves toward his enduring promise of salvation and away from the fleeting troubles of humanity. Now, I know there's a way you can kind of misuse that and misinterpret that and kind of say, oh, does that mean Christianity is a form of escapism where you kind of escape the the problems of the world? Uh, No, I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. Uh, we should still be people who engage the world. But does that mean that the issues of the world should be big enough to divide the church? A people who are supposed to be oriented around spiritual realities. A people who are supposed to claim that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. No, I don't think so. You know, I said the way Paul begins and the way Paul ends this passage are really stark contrasts. He begins by saying, I, I exhort you, I entreat you with the meekness, with the gentleness of Christ. And then he ends this passage by talking about warfare language, spiritual warfare. And again, that contrast is not a contradiction. You can be meek and gentle while also being in battle and fighting. And destroying spiritual strongholds. In other parts of Scripture, Paul says our, our war, our battle, is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. We find both in Jesus. We find the one who is meek and the one who is powerful and engaged in war, the ultimate military victor. In fact, Jesus' meekness is one of the aspects that contribute to his victory, Uh, We said that when Jesus shares his heart, he says he's meek and lowly. Did you know that also in Matthew 21, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, Matthew quotes the prophet Zechariah, and he says this, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. You know what that word humble is in, in Greek? Yeah, you guessed it. It's the same Greek word for meek. What does that tell us about Jesus? Jesus is the meek one. Where does that meekness lead him? Straight to the cross the ultimate symbol of weakness, death, defeat. But you see, Jesus was so powerful that he was able to transform its meaning and turn a symbol that was meant to be of weakness, death, and defeat into one that is now strength, power, life, and victory when he was raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is the very reason why Paul, and I would say by extension, why we, the church, why we can say strongholds, why we have the power to destroy strongholds, because in Christ the spiritual battle has already been won. In Jesus, we have the meek one who was also victorious in battle. And when he calls you, answer his invitation and come to him, for he is meek and lowly in heart. And when Satan's deceptions Wage war when his lies begin to enter into our minds. The battle for the mind. Use the power of the Holy Spirit. Lean upon his very word. Take every thought captive. Every thought captive to obey Christ. And wage war uh, vigilantly. (laughs) Not against one another across the political aisle. But as Paul says, wage war against Satan himself, the principalities, spirits of darkness. And because we have Christ, because we have his Holy Spirit dwelling among us, uh, we have the power to be victorious and to destroy these strongholds. Let's pray together. God, what a contrast that we see, um, you know, not only in the Apostle Paul, but ultimately in our Lord Jesus, uh, that we see one who is meek and so humble and so gentle, and yet through his meekness, uh, somebody who was incredibly powerful to overcome sin, to overcome death, to overcome Satan himself. And I just remember the imagery uh, that we read in the book of Revelation, Revelation 12, where Satan is thrown down. And surely, uh, through Jesus' resurrection, uh, Satan has been thrown down. Uh, God, we, um, you know, we thank you for your grace that we haven't experienced uh, that kind of uh, strife and division uh, in our local church. But we also know that uh, our local church is not um, the only church that you care for. And by extension, we belong to a body of believers Uh, different opinions about different things. And yet, we share the same faith, and that makes us one. We share the same baptism, and that makes us one. And so we pray, God, uh, for your churches at large, especially in America, that are experiencing some of these things. I pray, God, for all the pastoral leadership, that uh, you would remind them of the gentleness and the meekness of Jesus as they engage some of these things. But God, I also pray that you would remind all of us about the reality of Satan, that there is a spiritual realm, that there is an evil one who is trying to fill us with lies to divide us, to lead us astray. Help us to be vigilant in this battle, in this war. Help us to stay near and close to your word and to your spirit. And we pray, God, that you would uh, form and shape us according to these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.